Welcome to the Arrow Media Podcast. Today is another great episode of Arrow High Tea. Enjoy. Hello, this is Mr. Crawl coming at you with a new Arrow Media Podcast. This is going to be another Career Talk episode. What you're about to hear is the audio from a recent uh, conversation with Alex Shapiro. She's a composer based out of Washington State, and she recently talked to the Ashland High School bands about her compositions, some of which we're performing, and also some of the other compositions she's done. And it's a great conversation to hear about how you can become a composer and what some of the things you can do as a composer are. So we hope you enjoy this uh, podcast, which is a transcript from uh, a Zoom we did with Alex Shapiro on April 20th, 2001. Good morning. Good morning. Oh, I hear myself echoing through the room there. <laughs> Grant, turn that down just a little, please. How are you? Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Hopefully you can see our pile of kids back there all spread out in the auditorium. I see the, I, I do. There they are. Hi, hey everybody. Am I on a screen on the stage, over the stage? Yeah. But I just wanted to uh, welcome you. And this is our Ashland High School Band. It's actually two groups of students, um, concert band and symphonic band. Our concert band is performing uh, Paper Cut next month. And our symphonic band is performing Tight Squeeze. And then we've also got Michelle Murrow on the online too. And she's from Tri-County that um, got us the funding to bring you here today. So um, without any further ado, I wanted you to jump in and I will hit unmute when there's a reason to. Well, okay. And what I'd love to do is also, even though the, the students are, are back there in the audience, I think the, the most fun thing to do is I'll give a little bit of background about kind of where these pieces come from and what I do. And then it would be wonderful. I'd really love to take questions from the students. And so okay. what I recommend, since I won't be able to hear them, oh, you've got some already. Great. Because, um, and if they want to come right up to the laptop where you are, so I can, you know, see them face to face. Well, I will invite any, any daring soul up here and that we made them all submit questions just because oh, we were worried about spacing and distancing and whatnot, but we they, we do have quite a few here when the time comes. Okay, terrific. And and my levels are good. You can hear me just fine. Good. Okay. Well, with that, <laughs> the magic powers of Zoom as they are. Uh, good morning, everybody. Um, and uh, it is a uh, a really a, always a delight to be invited to talk about the process of where these pieces you're playing actually you know come from how did they how did they get here and just for context i'm going to show you what's out my window so you can see where i am and um this is i i live on on a little island off the coast of america <laughs> i'm in america just barely i'm off of washington state right on the british columbia border and this is San Juan Island, and this is what's what I'm looking at right behind the webcam. This is a live view, and if if the hummingbirds were coming by right now, you'd see. There they are. There's a hummingbird right on cue. <laughs> see, they're animatronic. I press a button, and then they come. But anyway, I show you this because I want to just, I think that all of us, when we make music, when we're making art, it's contextual, right? We, we all live in a world together, and we all come from different 
places in the world. And I think that when, when you're playing the music of somebody, it's kind of cool to see, well, where do they come from? And interestingly, the pieces of mine you're playing really, I wouldn't say they reflect this or look like this. They're not bucolic and, you know, and calm or anything. Um, and they, they're not about hummingbirds. <laughs> but I just thought that it would be kind of fun for you to, uh, uh, you know, to have a, have a look at what I'm looking at and what my life is here. There is one connection, by the way. Um, I don't know if any of you who are the ones who are playing Tight Squeeze, because uh, you're playing Tight Squeeze as well, right? One of the bands is, yeah. Um, I, I don't know if any of you have, he, have seen the cover, but there is a picture, and throughout the website, there's a picture um, of um, a young gull with a big flounder in its mouth and, and trying to swallow that flounder, which it eventually did after about 20 minutes. And I'm also, as you can imagine, living here, I'm also an amateur wildlife photographer, and I always have my camera at hand. I was trying to title Tight Squeeze. I had no title for it. I had just finished the piece, literally that day. And I was bopping around to it, and I thought, oh, this is going to be fun. It'll be weird, right? But it'll be different. It'll be fun. And I had no idea what to call it. And all of a sudden, in right in front of me here, that young gull lands on a rock in front of me with this big flounder in its mouth. And I'm thinking, how is he going to swallow that? And he just won't let go of it. And so I picked up my camera. I start for 20 minutes, you know, documenting the gull slowly getting that down his craw. He does swallow it. It took a long time. And during this period, I'm talking to the gull, which really, when you think about it, is never a good idea. They are lousy, lousy conversationalists. But nonetheless, I'm talking to the gull. And one of the things I said to the gull, I always remember this, I said, tight squeeze, eh? <laughs> and and then I dawned on me, you know, that's kind of like this piece. A lot of notes, you know, tightly played and squeezing through your instruments. So I decided that then and there to name that piece Tight Squeeze because of the gull. So there you have it. There's a little connection between nature and odd, weird sounding music because that piece is very up-tempo, obviously, and it doesn't look like what's out my window right now, which is so calm. Anyway... Um, so, as you know from paper, those of you playing Paper Cut, those of you playing Tight Squeeze, my thing in the band world, what I love to do, not 100% of the time, but probably 90% of the time, what I love to do is uh, combine you guys, you know, real instruments, real human beings playing their instruments with digital audio. That is my favorite thing to do. And, and I'll tell you why. Because in addition to the beautiful sounds of your instruments, which I never ever am trying to emulate. I'm not trying to be a bassoon or a euphonium or an oboe. You've got that covered. I'm not trying to do that, but I have a whole nother wealth of sound possibilities, sounds that you can't make here in my studio, in the digital audio. And that's what makes it electroacoustic music. You guys are the acoustic, um, this part is the electro. And the electro can be anything from sounds that I program here in these uh, digital synthesizers to me grabbing my phone and going around. And as I hear things in the world that interest me, I sample them. I, I record them on my phone and then I dump them into my computer and in a way that I can then trigger them on the keyboard. And I start working with those sounds as musical elements as well. And the cool thing about this, I'm sure some of you are composing organizing sound in some way, songwriting, improvising, sound design, gestures, whatever you're doing, 
you all are composers. You, some, you may not know it, but you're all capable of doing exactly this. And you don't even need the fancy gear to do it. If you have a phone, if you've got a, a smartphone with a recorder, um, <clears throat> excuse me, if you've got a laptop, you've got all the free software that you need. Um, there's stuff called uh, like Audacity, some of you probably know, um, Ableton, GarageBand if you're on a Mac, and online there's you know Soundtrap and Bandcamp, uh, BandLab and all this. So everything is waiting for you to explore at no cost, and it is so much fun. I lose myself for hours at a time organizing and creating sound, designing sounds. I use a lot of sound design in some of my pieces. Um, interestingly, with paper cut, I, I very specifically decided not to put the sounds of the paper in the track because I wanted them to come purely from the band. And I knew that in one of the big rules with paper cut when you're playing it, you have to hold the paper way above your head for two reasons. Uh, one, because it's a visual piece and it looks really cool. I spent a lot of time de designing the call and response of what it looks like, you know, when everybody's you know, raising their paper. And the other reason is because that's how the audience is going to hear it best. Uh, as opposed to if you're just playing it right into your music stand, you know, it's going to be muffled. But if you play it up here, right, people will hear it. It'll trans transport over the music stands. But um, I wanted to make sure that all the real paper playing was heard. So I didn't double it in the uh, in the band, and I didn't need to. So um, so that's that's one example of choosing not to use sound design. But other times, like I'm just behind me is the fourth movement of a symphony, a four movement uh, electroacoustic symphony, wind symphony, that's premiering in July that I'm just wrapping up. And the third movement, just to give you an example, the third movement, believe it or not, I use ping pong balls. Uh, in various ways. They don't really sound like ping pong balls, but I use them as a way to create to create and trigger sound. And so one of the things I do in the beginning of the piece uh, is I, I have the um, percussionists gather around three of the timpani, even though there's one timpanist, I get a couple other players around three timpani. They all, each timpani has an inverted symbol on it and you drop a ping pong ball into, try it. If those of you who have access to a kettle drum, drop a ping pong ball into the uh, inverted symbol resting on the timpani, which resonate, makes that sound resonate. It's the coolest sound. And if your timpani, if your kettle drum has a pedal, start pedaling while it's doing that. So in addition to using that sound on the recorded track, a sample of that that I that I had a percussionist friend make for me. I have the percussionist doing it in live time. Later in the piece, I have three percussionists on glockenspiel, um, uh, xylophone, and vibraphone standing at their instruments, playing an entire middle, two-minute, three-minute middle section of this piece with ping-pong balls, making these beautiful bouncy chords by bouncing the ping-pong balls on the bars which is really cool sounding and very random, right? And, you know, they, they don't do it from very high up, otherwise the balls are going to go flying, right? So you have, to, you have to get your technique down with this. They are becoming ping-pong ball virtuosi. But in addition, here's another cool thing about using tracks, is that not only do I have this unusual live sound, which isn't the loudest sound in the world, right? But it's very present, and I have them t located toward the lip of the stage. But additionally, I've got that same thing. I, I have samples of that I had my percussionist made for me playing those parts and sent it to me. And I processed them so it doesn't sound quite like what the live one sounds like. And I panned them. 
I did something that we can't do in a live stage, which is literally bouncing, no pun intended, bouncing sound all over the place. So I have the ping pong balls on the track doing what the live players are doing, but in a different way. And what that is, is a psychoacoustic approach to composing that the audience gets this whole, you know, wraparound experience. Same thing, I've done that with in a piece of mine called Liquid Compass. They, I have the percussionists, again, I'm always picking on the percussionists. They start from the back of the hall at the very beginning of the piece while the track is playing the sounds that I made of water dripping into a metal bowl, a big cheap, cheap kitchen metal bowl, you know, that you'd make salad in or something. Um, the six percussionists are slowly walking down the aisles with metal bowls that have a little bit of water in them and big automated sponges. And they're slowly walking past the audience members down the aisles, dripping water into the bowls while the audience is hearing a version of this sound on the speakers. Think about that. that the audience can't tell where the water is actually coming from. And then suddenly, it, like, it seems like it's in the air over the speakers, and then next thing they know, it's going right by their ear. And because it's sort of dark, you know, sometimes lighting is used. So these are just different creative ways to use digital audio techniques, ways of using a track to do things, not to pretend to be the band, but to add and complement the band. So in, and in the case of tight squeeze, it, what is it? It's electro, it's, um, excuse me, techno percussion. It's that very digital sounding percussion, which I'm not going to get that particular sound from the toms and the snare and whatever, you know, whatever live instruments you would have in your arsenal. The, the tight squeeze sounds, as you know, are very electric sounding, very different sounding, very, very electronica. And so they complement each other. Um, and in, in um, paper cut, I'm using very synthy kinds of sounds, almost like a cheesy movie score, you know? It's, it's a whole, that's a whole different sound that, again, doesn't sound like you. Um, so, the, so the digital audio track is an additional and equal section in the band. And you put it all together, and it get, gives you, you know, really big sound. It's always, the track is always played in the hall as loud as the band, if not louder. So it's a very pervasive, equal member. Because, you know, just like the woodwinds have their own sound, and the brass section has its own sound, and even the alto, the um, uh, saxophones within the woodwinds, they've got a very distinct sound, you know. And everybody's got their sound. And so this is just adding a whole nother set of sounds. So this really, as you can tell by my enthusiasm describing it to you, you know, it really, um, it, it just really inspires me to be able to work with all this. And so can you, because I circle back to that. Nothing that I'm doing here, uh, it, there's nothing that you can't do as well. And even like programs like Audacity, for example, totally free cross-platform. So if you're on a PC or a Mac, it doesn't matter. But those programs have a lot of plugins and you know, you can play with audio, chop it up, move it around, and you can process it and make that audio sound like anything you want it to sound like. And it's so it's just so great. And especially, you know, during this past year plus, more than a year, of chaos and uncertainty and anxiety, right? We've all been experiencing different levels of that because of what's going on and and being you know taken out of our daily routines one of the great things we all have that we share is being musicians because when we are playing music or writing music we are so focused on that one thing and we have control over it 
you know, this whole world seems to be one of not having a lot of control right now for any number of reasons. And music gives us the gift of self-expression and control. So it is really good for our mental health too. I love focusing in and just getting lost in the work that I'm doing. And it, it's, it's just, um, and you, you know, as I like to say, if, write the music you want to hear, whatever that is to you. Anything you want, you can serve it right up. You can do it. So I just uh, want to encourage all of you to, uh, you know, get busy having fun with some of the DAWs, the digital audio workstations um, that you can that you can acquire for free if you don't already have them. I bet some of you are already doing this, and I'd love to hear from those of you who are. But uh, anyway, I will stop there so we can move on to some questions. But I did want to give you a little bit of that background, you know, of uh, you know, my, what I do in this room. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I wanted to add um, to what you're saying at some point in the world, the instruments we use now in band, the, the, the brass woodwind percussion became standardized, right? So at some point, those were a new invention. Like at some point, like somebody said, Hey, check out this new thing. I'm calling it a clarinet. Let's try that with our music. And for quite a while, we kind of were just stuck in that mode of here's what we do. Yeah. And I like that you are adding new things to that repertoire. I like music that kind of expands that role. Once we have that figured out what, how to play our instrument and what instruments are common, now we can go somewhere else with it. And that's, that's one of the reasons why with this being a year as strange as it is, why, why not expose the students to big, different, strange at times ideas? Yeah. And, and that's where we stumbled across your pieces and your website. So I was very excited that we had the opportunity to try these different things because most of us don't get a chance to do something beyond standard like band repertoire. Mm -hmm. And this is the year to go for it. This is the year. And of course, doing since people have been hybrid and online and recording from their bedrooms and whatever, having a track, of course, is incredibly helpful. A click, a click and an accompaniment track so that if you are rehearsing at home under normal circumstances or sometimes recording your part at home this year, um, it's it just happens to be well, well suited for that, which is really fun. And the other thing I love that you have this attitude, this great perspective of, you know, everything was new once. Right. And and also the 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 um, concomitant thought with that is that we're not throwing anything out. It's not either or it's both. And just the way I say I feel the same way, by the way, about about technology. It's not that we're never going to go back to live performance again. Of course, we want live performance. Um, no one is saying that digital is better than live performance. It's just different. And, it, and there are different things you can do digitally. And when you use them both together, it can be fascinating, like uh, multimedia concerts where the band is live, the the the, perform the uh, audience is live, uh, everybody is live. But there are also elements happening on social media and on videos and with lighting and other things, you know, that are using technology to heighten the experience of the of the music and of the concert. So um, it's never either or. So I like I like your attitude very much about this. Bassoons. I think one of the oldest instruments must be the bassoon, by the way. It, it, I, I'd have to look that up, but I think that might win the cake for, for being a very a very one that hasn't changed very much over the years. Uh, that, that wins the award for most thumbs necessary to play. <laughs> um, where, are, where are my um, symphonic band flutes? Just wave for a sec. 
this is a this is a question from them oh. our symphonic band flutes um they want to know did you always want to be a composer and if not what got you there how did you become a composer as a, do that doing that for a living I always believe this. I'm a, like a demented person. I knew from the time I was in high school, from the time I was 15, that I wanted to be a composer. I'm not sure I knew actually what that job description meant other than writing a lot of music. I don't think I knew what it entailed. I certainly didn't know anything about publishing or the business side. I knew a little bit about copyright, but um, all I knew is that I loved writing music and that's what I wanted to do in some way, shape or form. And I started, I grew up in New York City in Manhattan. Uh, as I love to say, on an island half the size of the one I live on now, just with a lot more people. Um, and uh, I started writing when I was about nine. Not very well, <laughs> but I did write. I loved it. And so when I was 10, I asked my parents, could I have piano lessons? And they said, are you going to practice? We're not going to just pay for lessons if you're not going to practice. I said, yes, 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 I really am. And I didn't, I wanted to play the piano and learn how to play it. I had no interest in being a performer. Still don't. Never, never was a pianist performer uh, other than a few rare occasions. Um, But I loved the instrument. And I also realized at an early age that having facility on a keyboard would probably be, be very helpful for composing because you've got all the notes kind of, not all of them, but a lot of notes, 88 of them in front of you. And you can work out harmonies and see them visually, which is not to say that people who play monophonic instruments like the trombone or the oboe or the flute can't aren't great composers too. They're, it's just that this gives you a little bit of a toolbox to, to play with. And so I took piano lessons and then I think I had my first formal composition lessons uh, when I was 15. And that's when I realized, okay, this is really what I want to do. So that's, you know, that's how it is. Sometimes things come, they tell you, you don't decide. They kind of come to you and they grab you the, the, these professions and they say, this is what you're going to be doing. You know, it gives you joy. And, and I think the key thing, and for all of you, as you go forward in your lives, may you all be lucky enough to find something that you really resonate with, that makes you happy to do that you enjoy doing, that you want to get up out of bed in the morning and do. And may that thing be something you're naturally talented at doing. Because it's it's interesting. There, I always I see the world sometimes like two bubbles uh, in those Venn diagrams we've seen, where there are a lot of things in life. I and I hope this is true for you. There are a lot of things that we love that we love doing, really love doing. But maybe we're not that good at it. But that should never stop us from doing it. And case in point with me would be within the music world. At least there are a lot of other things. But songwriting, I've written a lot of pop songs. I love writing pop songs. I could write pop songs all day long. Um, fun, fun, fun. But writing, writing a mediocre pop song, okay, that's not that hard. Writing a really good one is very hard. And I realized early on, okay, um, it doesn't stop me from doing it. I can do it anytime I have time to do it, but I'm not going to try to make my living doing it, right? I was aware that just because I love doing it didn't mean I was great at it, you know, that it was going to be the right fit. But the key thing is to find what you really love doing that you also internally, when you're brutally honest with yourself, that you feel like you have some some uh, aptitude at, you know, that professionally. And when those two things come together in that circle overlap, the things and the other circle, by the way, are things that you're really good at doing, but maybe you don't love doing that much, right? Like you could get a job doing da 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 da, you'd be great at it, but would you be happy? Would you be happy? And if the answer is, eh, 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 
then maybe that's not for you because just because you can do it well doesn't mean that's what your life goal, life profession should be. When those two things come together, the things you love and the things you do well, and they overlap in that Venn diagram and that's, there's that sliver in the middle, woohoo, that's your happy spot. That's where you're probably destined to have a very happy life. And so that's sort of what happened with me, I think, is that I have a lot of interests in all different arenas. Uh, I've, I've done all kind I've done a lot of volunteer work and I serve on a lot of boards of directors and I get very involved in issues that matter to me. And that includes a lot of civil liberties work, especially uh, back in the 1990s in Los Angeles, well, I was living in Los Angeles for 24 years, civil liberties, and also, at no surprise, marine sciences. I'm very active with uh, the marine sciences uh, world. Um, in uh, Here in Friday Harbor, we have one of the preeminent uh, marine research labs in the country and I'm on their board and you know so these are things that I'm very very deeply involved with and interested in but I'm not trying to make my living doing them so I think the, the key thing with having a happy life is you know find the thing that you do really well for which you can get paid as well and then keep doing other things as well don't just be one-dimensional you know fill your life with interesting pursuits and also fill your life with good people the people with whom you sur surround yourself uh, are going to make or break your experience as a human and bring, do your best to bring out the best in everybody around you as well. So it's a two-way street, but choose people around you well, choose your friends well. And you know we've all had experiences where we didn't and it hurts. Um, but I think the people in our lives and you know us doing the best for others and making sure that good people are around us that's a very significant thing, and I know it doesn't sound like I'm talking about music, but I am. Because music making, and you know, whether you're playing the instrument or writing the notes for the instruments, it comes from who you are as a person. It's not a, 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 a bifurcated, separate, compartmentalized thing. You know, it's not like I'm not a, a stick figure composer on legs, right? Uh, you know, the music that you're playing comes from me. I'm, I'm the product, really. You know, it's my heart. The music you write comes from you. And it has your specific you know, viewpoint and, and perspective from living your life. So everything to me is very holistically uh, connected. That's, that's great. I wanted to just quick survey out in the crowd. How many of you have ever composed anything, like just on your own for fun um, or serious? I know I see a couple percussionist hands up too. They, they really like when it gets around marching band season, we, they come up with some cool ideas for cadences and fills between things. Um, we've got a great district here that embraces all those sort of things. We have a big jazz band program. So we have students improvising a lot. We have theory classes, we have technology classes, just trying to get kids those opportunities. Um, so I'm glad you hit on that with, with careers and things. Um, I, let's single out, where are my tubas? Tubas, yay, wave, okay. Um, and concert flutes and oboe. They, they asked this, this same question, actually several groups asked this same question and it, and it puzzles them because, you know, band is done a certain way and this is how it works and thou shalt not change. But they ask, how come your piece, uh, your, your music doesn't have a key signature that really bothered them? You know, all these notes are there with accidentals. So they, they had a hard time coming to terms with that. So if you'd like to talk about your process with that, that'd be interesting. Sure. Well, let's take a, a piece like Tight Squeeze, um, changes keys, it's very chromatic, and it is what I would call a pan-tonal piece, not atonal, 
Atonal means no tonality at all. Pantonal means all. A pan is from the Greek, pan, all. And it means you're using all the notes and you're using them in all orders. And let's talk about tight squeeze because it's a great example of this. The reason it's not in a key signature, it could maybe be in a key signature for a few bars at a time, but it is a 12 tone row. Do you know, have you talked about that? Because if you haven't, let's talk about that. Okay. There is a history. Please do they, freak them out for a second. Uh, what? Feel free to freak them out about 12 Excellent. tones. I, I think they deserve it. This is great. No, this is, you know, tight squeeze obviously is a bop, you know, it's a, it's a groove piece, but I did something very tricky in it. It's, it, you probably have noticed lack of key signature and all that it is a highly chromatic piece. I use every note in the scale. And the reason for that is first of all, it's what I heard at least up until eight notes into the melody. But there is a, a historic tradition that you should read up about from over a hundred years ago that started in uh, in Europe in the uh, the second Viennese school with composers. I hope you've heard of Arnold Schoenberg, Anton Webern, people like that, and then a little later uh, later Stefan Wolpe and Ralph Shapey and my one of my teachers Ursula Mamlock, uh, who just died a few years ago in her nineties. She's from Berlin. Anyway, there's a long tradition of over 100 years ago, or about 100 years ago, actually, um, there were a big bunch of composers like Schoenberg, uh, probably the most famous of them, who decided they wanted to escape from the confines of tonality as all of Western music had dictated for you know a very long time in, in classical European music, Beethoven, Haydn, Brahms, right? All of that. They wanted to make a left at the lights, so to speak, very suddenly, and they did. They threw the tonality out entirely, and, and they created a system called 12-tone serial music or row music using a tone row. However, there are many terms, interchangeable terms for it. But th think about a grid of 12 by 12 grid, and going across, you put, you know, our Western scale has 12 notes. We're very limited compared to the rest of the world. And if you are not already familiar with the music of Indonesia or Africa or India or China, get familiar with it because that's what most of the world has a far more expansive musical uh, vocabulary than we do. Uh, we have 12 notes. They've got a lot of microtonality and many notes in between each, each of those notes. It's beautiful. But we have 12. <laughs> so you take one of those notes and they cannot repeat themselves across. And then if you're really going whole hog on the whole 12 tone thing, which I did not in, in tight squeeze, my, my tone row is uh, uh, horizontal, but then vertically starting with each one of those notes, you fill in a different combination in a different order of other 12 notes for each. And then you end up with this grid from which you're choosing and creating your chords and your melodic patterns and etc. It's, it's a game. It's like Sudoku for, for music. I don't know how else to describe it. It's, um, but the cool thing is with Tight Squeeze, what I did was this. I didn't set out to write a 12-tone piece. I simply, I got a little of the groove program. By the way, I don't just hold my finger down on something. I program every one of those percussion notes by hand. <laughs> so I put those, I put that track together note by note. So I had a few bars of it going. I knew kind of the feel I wanted to have. And then I was sort of improvising a melody on top. I got about <clears throat> eight notes in and da 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 you know, and sort of up there. And I didn't know where to go next. I didn't know what I was going to do next. And um, 
I looked at the notes, which I really don't think um, theoretically at all when I'm writing. I, I write by ear, even though I'm a very trained musician. I write by ear. I, I write the music I want to hear. I, I looked at the notes and I realized, wow, none of them repeat themselves. That I didn't plan it that way, but none of them repeat themselves. And that's when I decided, let's go for broke. Let's see if I can find the right order for the last four notes. And let me slot them in there. And it didn't take me too long to come up with the rest of that theme, which you now know because you play it many times. The re that theme, as you know, changes a tonal center within it, you know, a few times. And within the piece, that theme appears in different tonal centers different times. So unless I were to change the key signature constantly, it's just sort of pointless to have a key signature. Con contemporary music does not, many of us writing concert music do not use key signatures because we are pantonal. We are not in the 18th century or even parts of the more tonally centric, you know, 20th and even 21st century, writing pieces that are very predictable in their harmonies. We are, a lot of us write music that is more, much more chromatic. So it doesn't make sense to be in a key signature. Sometimes, a few of my pieces I do put in key signatures. I probably could have put, if paper, I thought paper cut wasn't a key signature. Is it not? I could have put it in one. Um, I mean, I think it's in B flat, basically. I think. I think so. I think it's tight squeeze that. Yeah, it's tight squeeze is not in a key signature. Yeah, um, but and there and now you know the reason why because that's a chromatic piece and it flits around to all these different tonal centers. So this is contemporary music, and and I don't want anybody to ever feel limited by the music theory of the past. It served Bach very very well. It served Mozart very very well. Those are very different kinds of pieces that stay. They modulate. They do go to different related keys almost always the keys are related if you look at your circle of fifths and your theory you know you're looking at relative minors parallel minors parallel majors relative majors all of that great one four five one all these traditional progressions and they still sound great to this day and i use them all the time in my own work just with different um notes piled on top of them but now our language has has really expanded just like the way we've talked about technology expanding the scope of an ensemble our language uh, musically has expanded very beautifully over the over many years so that is why no key signatures and by the way it's actually really good for you guys to all learn to read those accidentals because that's real music you know that's again if you're if you're going to be playing chamber music and you know as you get better and better and some of you I'm sure are playing at a very high level already you know that if you're playing contemporary pieces there many of them are not going to be in key signatures because those bar to bar we're changing you know one bar to a b flat the next bar to a b natural and if you if you did put a piece like tight, tight squeeze in a key signature in a key signature you'd be looking at almost the same number of accidentals they'd be reversals you know so there you go um that's great um where where are my symphonic french horns they got the next question oh they're all hiding good actually it's two questions the first one's really really important they want to know if you named the tight squeeze bird. <laughs> no, but you guys can. We could call him Fred. I don't know. I did not name the tight squeeze bird. All right. Bird. We, we'll, <laughs> That's great. we get exclusive naming rights. You heard it yes, here first. Okay. Yeah. Um, their, their real question was um, sort of a two-part. How, how do you know what you want your music to sound like, and when do you know it's finished? Like, how do you Great. know? You're just like, I'm done composing. That one's done. Yeah, that is a great question. 
Really great question. You trust your gut. And let's start with the beginning, with the first part, you know, uh, like how do you start and where do you get ideas from? How do you know what to write? And that often, well, whoops, I've frozen for some reason. You know, can you hear me at least? Even though you can't we see can, me? We can hear you, but you're, you're screaming. I have no idea why I froze. That's really weird. I have a one gig fiber optic uh, connection here. Um, huh. Let me restart my video. Let me stop it and start again. Yep. You can log out and back in too if that, if that works. Yeah, that's really weird. There we go. Let's try it again. See, I'm coming back, I promise. Hold on. I. Here we go. Oh, that worked it like a charm. <laughs> Sorry, I have no idea what's uh, what's going on here. Um, one sec. We're going to try this one more time and then I'll log out. Um, and log back in again. Because I'm just about to talk about something. But you can still hear me, right? Yes. Okay, good. I'm just going to keep talking and finish this thought. And then I might uh, log out and log, log in again if the video might catch up. But I, I look better like this, actually. Um, this is an improvement, uh, especially this early in the morning. No, the, the, I start every commission, because uh, working composers work on commission. And every commission starts with, um, the, with the knowledge of your instrumentation. Like, what ensemble have you been asked to write for? So in this case, let's say wind band. And they almost always tell you what duration piece uh, they're looking for. Uh, it, there's a very big difference between a three-minute piece and a 25-minute piece. In a three-minute piece, it's like a pop song where you can only go uh, so many places, so to speak, before, um, uh, you know, before, hold on, I'm going to try a different camera here. Uh, you can only go so many places before um, you have to wrap up. So it's very much like a pop song. You've got a chorus, a bridge, a theme, a hook, boom. You know, you hear them repeatedly, and that's better than a black box, I figured. And, um, and, and, there you, and there you go. With a longer piece, you can go a lot of different places and take people on a, on a bigger emotional journey. And what is key when you're thinking about what to write about is what kind of emotion are you trying to convey? Tight squeeze, obviously, is a fun, up-tempo piece that is not it's not a dirge it's not a eulogy it's not sad you know it, I was just looking to do something fun um paper cut has a little bit of tension in it it's minor and da da dum bum bottom you know it's a little more intense sounding so I was going for that I thought that would be kind of fun I've got other pieces of course you know that are very um you know sort of elegiac and slow and sad and thoughtful and pensive and melancholy so it's what so you think about the emotion and for those of you looking to to start writing a piece you know that's always a great place to start think about what emotion do you want to convey to your musicians playing it and to your audience and then from there you know what I do I write down adjectives that describe that emotion and that really helps get me started. I write down words and sometimes if I have a sense of the shape of the piece as it starts to unfold in my head, because I do a lot of the writing in my head, I will write down sentences, almost like a play-by-play -play of a sports sporting event, you know, on AM radio or something. You know, the horns do this and the piccolo comes in and yada yada, you know, and it's it's kind of fun. And then another thing that I do is I love to sometimes, not always, but sometimes I make abstract drawings of what I'm hearing in my head. 
And those abstract drawings are very helpful for just looking at the gesture of what what the intensity or lack thereof is with no notes and no rhythms. But then once I look at that picture, I might start putting in, I might start feeling some rhythms. And I and here you might wonder why are there a lot of mixed meters in some of my pieces, not tight squeeze, and I think paper cut only has one, but some of my other pieces change meter every other measure. And the reason is because the flow of the music is irregular, and I don't want people knowing necessarily where the downbeat is all the time. So I, for, to get a very human flow that is artistically pleasing to me, I change the meters. So I could put all that in underneath the drawing sometimes. And then only then, after I've spent a lot of time away from the keyboard, will I then go and start in, in that I, by that I mean typing keyboard as well as playing keyboard, then I'll start inputting uh, some of my ideas and away we go. So there is, um, that's one of the ways to get started. And in terms of where do you stop, that becomes an issue of Sometimes it's not so much the music as it is the orchestration, understanding that the, the two are really inseparable. And let's say right now I'm, I'm writing a, f a form-based piece of the last movement of the symphony. I chose a classical form, just like Papa Haydn, Joseph Haydn would have done, four movements where the first movement is Sonata Allegro. If you haven't studied these forms, I'm sure you will. The second movement is a lyrical pensive movement, and the third movement is an actual a minuet and trio, which is a slow, stately kind of dance, and it's a piece within a piece. And the fourth movement that I'm finishing now is a rondo. And a rondo, let's take a rondo form. It's A, B, A, C, A, D, A, right? A seven-part rondo. It keeps flinging itself, boomeranging back to the first initial motif and motivic idea. And it's very fun to write with a form. I don't usually write with a form, but for this piece I am. And so what am I doing orchestrationally? When A first starts, it starts with a moderate orchestration. That will be enough to get people's attention. But as it keeps coming back, it morphs. It's the same material, but it builds and builds. And what I've planned in my head is that the final you know, return of A, and also since it's the end of the symphony, is going to be very thickly orchestrated. It's going to be big, big, big. And that's how I know how to end. You know, I'm thinking about the shape of something as well as the music. Like I, you know, the form will sometimes be very helpful for telling you what the music should be. And then in terms of the shape, the orchestration and the textures will tell you where are you going because you can create any arc you want. Um, the first movement of this symphony starts really loud with a full orchestra, like boom, um, everybody's playing and hits you over the head, like wakes you right up, like, okay, listen to this now. <laughs> so, you know, you can choose the shape of your piece, uh, however you want to, you know, start soft, get, you know, louder in the middle, end up soft again, start loud, get soft, start soft, get loud, right? And, and go up and down those hills. I'm going to try my other camera uh, one more time here while you ask another question. <laughs> Let's see. Great. Yeah, work. I think they've been they've enjoyed looking at the hummingbirds. Yeah. They're, they're doing pretty well for a hundred kids sitting still for an hour. It's pretty yeah. tough. They're, they're troopers. Um, yeah. Our symphonic baritones. Where are you? Boom. Um, they asked a great question. Um, they. They, they had checked out your website and looked at some of your, your resume and found out you did lots of things for shows or movies. And they want to know, what's your favorite character or kind of character from shows and movies that you like to compose pieces for? Oh, wow. I guess I, I like the complicated dark ones. <laughs> the very, the, the difficult characters are fun 
because just you know, like our baritone section there yeah. you go exactly yeah. I, I the more complicated and dark the more fun it is to write music and in fact my favorite music to write and and again the first two movements of this current symphony are really dark very emotional and very dark um and then everything comes up into the light with the last two movements but i i happen to love writing um very dark <laughs> dark uh music it's really fun let me try logging out just for one second. I know we're getting, you know, toward the end, but we still have another, you know, 10, 15 minutes. So let me log out really quickly and I'll log back in again. See if I can fix this, okay? I will be right back. Hey! <laughs> so this is what it takes for me to get a big round of applause. There I like you go. that. I am so sorry. I was sending you emails throughout this, Marty. Yeah. <laughs> just saying, I'm trying to get back on. I have no idea what happened. Anyway, I don't want to waste our time. So, but that happened at a, at a good time. I had to log off right after I gave you that long explanation so you could wind up your next question. <laughs> yes. Excellent. Excellent. Um, so we've got so many good questions. Um, symphonic clarinets. Where are you? Where are you? There you go. Um, do you have any special tricks or techniques you use when writing music? to ensure instruments blend well with each other. Ooh, wow. Yeah. That's a very sophisticated question. Yeah. That's really good. Um, Clarinets so are sophisticated. I tell you, very sophisticated reads there. Um, uh, the, the technique is basically it's one of experience. Uh, for the first and foremost, for any kind of composing or orchestrating, you start by using your ear. And that starts by listen, having listened your whole life to a lot of music, having been aware of what sounds good to your ear, what seems to be pleasing, learning about the actual instruments and how they perform in different registers. Because the tessitura, as it's called, the you know the area of like clarinet's a great example, but actually every instrument is. They sound different in different octaves, right? In different different playing ranges. The tessitura of an instrument is going to determine the how you use it orchestrationally and for what reason. Um, you know, bassoon, for example, is such a huge range. And if I want to put it down in the basement at its lowest register, that's going to be for a certain kind of purpose. But it can soar, as you all know, in the very high register and be quite beautiful and lyrical. And so combinations of instruments are like that. You think about what are they going to sound like together? How are those frequencies that they make going to resonate together? Um, am I looking to create a muddy chaos kind of sound where everything's agitating against each other or which would be put everybody kind of in the same registration and you get kind of mud but if and that's bad if you're not doing it intentionally but if you're looking for mud you know put all your trombones play and 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 horns playing in the same you know little little cluster of uh, of notes or if you're looking to space something out and have it really sore separate them by octaves you know, one of the tricks with string writing, for example, is two octaves difference between, you know, between um, instruments, two, sometimes three. It makes everything just open, open wide up. So it's you're using. So it's those things you're you you're using your ear, but you're also learning an awful lot through experience about the instruments and what they sound like. Uh, I don't believe really. I'm very non-traditional, as you've already figured out. I don't really believe in quote unquote the rule books of what you're supposed to do. I think that's what gets us into boring music because everybody is always uh, orchestrating the same way. I don't think that you have to do things always by the rules and stay inside the box of how band music or orchestral music should be orchestrated, should quote unquote. 
Um, I try new things all the time. It doesn't always work, but sometimes you come across some really cool, you know, new sound. And uh, I think it's important for artists to always experiment and not feel like you have to, um, uh, you know, stay inside the lines or adhere to rules that were made hundreds of years ago. The world changes, and and I, I, I celebrate anybody who wants to, you know, try something different. But That's learn great. what the instruments do. Our, um, you, you touched on this a little bit earlier, but our, our symphonic band percussion, where are you guys? Weave. That's the quietest the drum line has ever been, ever. <laughs> um, their concern, and you had touched on this, was um, the value of having the live percussion with a piece that also has a track with percussion doubling it. Yeah. Um, how, how do we console the drummers to know that their part's still valuable? You matter because your sounds are very different timbres than the timbres I'm using in any of these pieces. I'm thinking, I think about that a lot. The biggest issue for me as the composer is to make sure uh, that everybody stays in sync with the track because like Tight Squeeze is a groove track. Everybody's got to be right watching your fearless leader on the podium like a hawk. And ideally, I always say if you have extra earbuds for the percussionist to actually have a, a click in their ear as well, just like the conductor does, that's awesome. That will really keep people together. But failing that, you set the groove because the band is actually going to hear you, the percussion line, more than it's going to hear the track coming over some crappy stage monitors. You know, those are just sort of for reference. But the reality is that if you <clears throat> if you get off the beat, everybody's going to fall off the cliff with you. And so everybody's going to follow you. So I think the hardest thing, it's not the sound, because I'm creating different sounds for you to play than in uh, the piece. Um, but the hardest thing is staying totally locked in, in the pocket with where that groove and where that uh, rhythm is really falling along with the track. That takes a little bit of practice. Um, in the case of Tight Squeeze, you know, I, I, I will admit, and I maybe I owe you percussionists an apology, I didn't give you nearly as much fun per, uh, syncopations and things to play as I put in the track. And that was because I was a little afraid that because the syncopations have to be so tight in order to work at that tempo, I was afraid it might not come off. And so for the most part, if you know, for the most part, you're playing easier, straighter lines. So I apologize for that. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I was trying to keep everybody really together. But the timbre of what you're doing matters a lot. So. Great. Um, our, um, let's see, who, who am I going to call it next? Our um, symphonic band trumpets. Yeah. <laughs> um, what's, what's some of the hardest parts about writing this type of music? Just putting it all together. What, what, what do you struggle with? Um, as you come up with these things? Great question. These are great questions, folks. Um, it's a three-ring circus behind me. Um, the big monitor here tells the story. <laughs> there are four monitors here. Um, there's a lot going on here. And a lot of visual information, a lot of sonic information. This big monitor represents all of you and all of the tracks I'm working with. So uh, when I'm writing a, a large piece like this, you know, I've got, what, 35 to 40 tracks of musicians. And then, uh, you know, staves, tracks, whatever you want to call it, and really more uh, because I've got other sounds going on. And then I've got a whole bunch of samples and um, uh, electronic sounds. 
that I'm working with. That's probably two thirds of that screen uh, underneath the band. The band, the samples I'm using at the top here are never going to be heard in the track. They're just for me to compose with, for me to hear the basic frequencies of the of the um, instruments, so that I don't um, uh, you know step on your toes, so to speak. Because good orchestration and good engineering have the same rule: don't have too many frequencies in the same place. And so everybody's got their shelf where they need to be on. And that's why a wind band sounds so amazing, right? Because you've got so many different registrations playing together. Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful, powerful sound. Or an orchestra or what, you know, whatever ensemble. So in my case, I'm slotting these in just so I'm writing around them and making sure that you know, when, I have, when I have the French horn playing, you're going to hear that beautiful you know, frequency. Um, the hardest part is I'm writing the music and I'm also coordinating with the track. I'm writing the track at the same time. It's just another section in the band. So I'm orchestrating the track at the exact same time as the instruments. And um, I have to then be a recording engineer. I've got to record, mix down, master, engineer all these tracks. In and I have to do the music preparation. So it gets out of this. This is Digital Performer, which is, you know, like GarageBand or anything. It's the Lamborghini version of it. Um, and I export from here when I'm somewhat done at different, depending on the piece. And I go into my computer here, my laptop here, and I open up a notation program called Sibelius. Uh, which is like Finale or Dorico or Muse Score, um, and uh, and I then have to translate everything so that musicians can read it. What I'm often doing as well, because I like to see the whole uh, actual the music and the music paper in front of me. I'm doing most of my orchestration in Sibelius, so it's not necessarily here at all. It's just I make little notes and markers of what I want to do. I'm getting the track right along with writing for the instruments, knowing what I'm going to write and laying in some of the lines. Then when I get into Sibelius, I'm finishing a large amount of the uh, instrumental work there because I, you know, I'm working with actual notes that look like notes and making it readable by all of you. Then there's the parts preparation, right? And the mixing of the tracks. And it's, it's a three ring, so creating the click track for the conductor, uh, creating add additions on the click track. Sometimes I did this last night on a track. Uh, sometimes I add my voice on certain uh, bar numbers because it helps the conductor or anybody recording at home know exactly where they are in certain kinds of pieces. Tight squeeze and paper cut don't need that, but other kinds of pieces do. Uh, I, I, so it's. I don't want to interrupt, but yeah. um, I've got uh, the bulk of the students have to head out. Okay, um, no, we can. I'd wrap like up. to ask another question or two if we can. But those of you that have to get going, get going. If anyone sure. and I've got to get around, going at 8:32, it's more. fine. But uh, but basically, just to wrap up, it's a very complicated job, you know. And I may, if I were writing, you know, a duet for two monophonic instruments, it would be so much easier. <laughs> but it's I just wanted to give you guys, you know, an idea. And there they all go! Yay! Thanks, thanks, guys, for letting me talk to you. Um, I wanted to ask a question that our our trombones asked. Um. How do you start a piece? Like, like you know, you go from nothing to, oh, I've got this idea. I know a lot of kids, they're like writing papers and things. And it's, you know, sometimes it's hard to just get started and then the ideas start to flow. So any, yeah, any was what I was that? saying be before about, I sit there on the sofa here, you know, I'll sit over there and I, um, uh, I imagine what kind of journey do I want to take everybody on? And I'll write down those words and make those pictures and think about the gestures and think about the duration I have 
and map out kind of a general rough idea of what I can do in that amount of time. That's, you know, that's it. It's sort of just let your mind, mind go free. Are you a composer also? Yeah. Yeah. I've never, I've never done a big symphonic work or anything. Typically it's, it's smaller pieces. Oh, there's the bell. I'll let I'll let you um, guys go. I, I'm so sorry for that five minute you know, delay there. No, I, I, this was actually uh, a great experience for the kids, and we've good. we've we've saved it so we can review it and and, and listen to it again. Um, uh, since since this is I am recording this, I just wanted to take a moment to thank Michelle again. Thank um, you, and Michelle. Tri County <laughs> and the Ohio Arts Council for for their grant that made this this very easy for me. Thank um, you. So I appreciate your willingness to come and talk to our kids as well. Oh, I think it's so important for, for working professionals to engage with, with students. I think that is so important. And I really appreciate that, that you invited me in to, to do this. I hope, I, hope, I hope some of them got something out of this because it's, it's really fun for me to share my passion with them about this and maybe you know, show them what's, what's possible. So. Well, you were phenomenal. Oh. I, I wish all of our kids could uh, have heard uh, you talking about oh, thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank thanks you, again. Michelle. And um, in, enjoy the rest of your day because I know it's just begun. It's just begun. Take very good care. Stay well. Okay. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thanks again to Alex Shapiro for meeting with our students back on April 20th. I'd also like to take a moment to thank Michelle Murrow at the Tri-County ESC and the Ohio Arts Council for their grant. Um, together they helped um, cover the cost of our meeting with Alex Shapiro today. And if you want to learn more about her music, visit her at alexshapiro.org online. This has been a production of Arrow Media Studios at Ashland High School. Subscribe to Arrow Media Podcasts wherever you find your favorite podcasts.